Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, guys, got a good one for you this week. It's Paula Ferris. She was, until she abandoned me recently, my longtime co-host on the weekend editions of Good Morning America. If you read my most recent book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, she was featured in there as a as quite a prominent character. Uh, she is somebody who's played a really important role in my life, not only as a friend and a colleague, but somebody who's really uh, forced me to really wrestle with some of my biases. She, as you'll hear, she is not the normal character who inhabits the world of mainstream media. She comes from very different background. Uh, She is a devout evangelical. Uh, She comes from the Midwest and uh, went to a school that was really focused on, on faith and, um, I working with her so closely over the years has really been incredibly helpful to uh, for me, and uh, you will you'll hear us explore that. She's also done a really brave thing where she stepped back recently from Weekend GMA and her role as the co-host on The View to spend more time with her family. Often, when people spend <laughs> often when you see people stepping down from big jobs, they say they're doing it to spend time with their family. That means they got fired. Uh, that is not the case with Paula. She did not get fired. She's surprised everybody by saying she really wanted to focus more on her relationship with her husband, which she felt was uh, suffering, uh, 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 as well as her relationship with her relationships with her three kids as a consequence of having this incredibly unusual and hectic schedule. So now she's a senior national correspondent here at ABC News, which has uh, been a tough transition for her. And she feels like uh, she lost part of her identity from st- after stepping back from these jobs, which she wasn't quite she wasn't quite uh, uh, prepared for. So she wrestles with all of this, and um, also we talk a lot about her relationship with meditation, which has been interesting and, and helpful, and also complicated by uh, her faith. And she has a lot to say to people of faith who are interested in but reluctant about meditation. So much more to say about Paula Ferris, much more uh, from her coming up. But first, uh, an item of business and then your voicemails. The item of business is – I hope you'll forgive me for being slightly salesy here, but I'm going to do it really quickly. Uh, If you want to give the gift of sanity in this holiday season as we're roaring up to uh, Christmas here – Check out uh, the 10% Happier app. We can, we, you can send it as a gift. Go to gift.10percenthappier.com, and uh, you can send somebody. This is like a great stocking stuffer or last-minute gift. Uh, and I know I talked about Christmas but uh, and, and Hanukkah's over, but, you know, it could be a, a late Hanukkah gift. Um, all right. That's the business. Let's get your voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My question is about meta-meditation. I did my first meta-meditation a few months ago in a meditation class, and I found it to be very powerful and emotional and impactful. It um, brought me to tears, and I really value that experience. But when I tried to incorporate the meta-meditation that I got from the teacher as a recorded meditation later, 
I haven't found it to be nearly as powerful. I find it almost kind of boring. And I'm wondering how you find it still be useful and impactful uh, more than just as much as, or at least to some degree, as you did the first time. Uh, so thanks a lot. Thank you. So just for newbies, we've talked about meta meditation many times on this podcast, but if you're New to the podcast, first of all, welcome. Uh, second of all, here's a quick definition. Metta, M-E-T-T-A, is a kind of meditation that's often translated as loving-kindness meditation. I'm not a huge fan for what should be obvious reasons, given my incurable skepticism and uh, sort of anti-sentimental nature um, of the term loving-kindness, but uh, friendliness is a good term. Uh, so you, let's just call it friendliness meditation. The way it's it's done is you systematically envision people, visualize them, and then you repeat silently these phrases like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you usually start with uh, an easy person, then you go to yourself, then you – the order can change. But often it's taught as starting with an easy person, then yourself, then a benefactor, a neutral person, a difficult person, and then everybody. And uh, I have – you know, I have said many, many times that I found this – practice very annoying at first, but also very powerful, and there's a lot of science to suggest it's really good for you. To your question, you you said you had a very powerful experience with, the, with it the first time, but then now that you've gone back and, and, and done it subsequently, it's not as powerful and uh, maybe a little boring. So I, my answer to that is I, I get it. I get it. It, it, is, it can be uh, frustrating when we have a powerful experience in meditation and then we feel like we're failing because we don't quote-unquote, get there the next time or ever. But that is kind of to miss the point. I don't think the point of meditation is to feel a certain way. In fact, if you go into any meditation expecting to feel a certain way, expectation is, um, you know, can be a, a deal killer. It's a classic, in to put it in Buddhist terms, a, a classic hindrance to meditation. It's desire. You're you're wanting something, and that just gets in the way of it, it shuts down the whole system. So, I wouldn't worry so much about achieving a certain outcome. It's about the training. It really doesn't matter in some ways what you're experiencing on the cushion. Of course, it does matter to in some ways, but in some ways, it doesn't. This is. Uh, no matter how dry it may feel, the the act of picking up the phrases, picking up the practice, and just going back to work of in, envisioning these people, visualizing the beings that, to whom you're sending these well wishes, and going through the inner bicep curls of of working your compassion muscle, that is what matters. And what the science shows is that over time, this has uh, physiological and psychological and behavioral impacts. And uh, so to, the point is to keep at it, not to get hung up on having a specific experience. And the way to really measure whether it's having an impact is to do it for a while and step back and take a look at your life not take a look at how it feels every time you're on the cushion. That is, again, not to say that uh, the the meditation experience doesn't matter at all. There may be tweaks that are needed in your practice, but really the, the, the big measure is what is it doing to your life. All right, question number two. Hi, Dan. Rebecca from San Francisco, and I love your podcast. 
and your 10% Happier app. I'm a very happy subscriber. Um, one thing that I've really learned through the app and through the courses is the principle of impermanence and equanimity. That's the term. Uh, I know that when my friends first started meditating and they would tell me about these all-day retreats or weekend retreats where they were sitting for hours on end, and if they got a muscle cramp or an itch or any discomfort, they were supposed to notice it and then let it go. And I didn't quite ever get that. To me, your body's trying to tell you something and you need to fix it. So that's where my, my question kind of stems from. So with the course, I do understand the learning lesson in equanimity and impermanence and just noticing things and not judging and not doing anything about it. But do you think there's also a lesson in the fact that maybe if I make a shift, a little shift, I can ease some of that discomfort? Would love to get your opinion on that. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's a great question and not uncommon question. I think there's a... Uh, a line here that you got to keep your eye on. I definitely agree that uh, sometimes your body is trying to tell you something. And if you're sitting in a certain way uh, and you persist through the pain, you might get hurt. So if you're really in an incredible in an incredible amount of pain and you think you're going to you know, hurt your knee or sprain your ankle or whatever it is from the position you're sitting in, then yes, obviously move. The point here is not to hurt yourself. However, in my experience, a lot of the pains are not your body trying to tell you, hey, you know, it's not similar to putting your hand on a hot stove where the pain is trying to tell you something, you know, incredibly urgent. It's more that, you know, you're, uh, these are, this is the, (laughs) the fact of life of having a body that after a while, if you stay in the same position, it's going to start getting uncomfortable. Maybe it's a psychological reaction as sort of your body, um, you you know, um, uh, experiencing psychosomatic pain of, um, you know, not wanting to face some difficult thing that's actually coming up psychologically. There are any number of reasons why you could be feeling pain, but it's not going to be life-threatening or uh, damaging to your body. And that's where I actually do think you should sit with it because this is when you can really make – it sucks, but you can make – real strides in your practice to turn your attention from your breath in these moments to the discomfort. Watch the kind of thinking that happens as a consequence of this. Watch, see that the pain itself is not monolithic, that it does shift and move and change and vibrate. And so you can learn something about the nature of change in these in these moments. And you can also learn something about uh, about the fact that, as as many meditation teachers will tell you, Pain is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. We are, if you have a body, you will experience pain in your life. Suffering is optional. That's the stuff we add on top. And you can really see how this process works, that the pain is there, but the suffering is in our, why is this happening to me? When's this going to end? All of that stuff. And sort of disambiguating the two is something that can, is important work that can really happen in those moments of physical discomfort. Something Joseph Goldstein talks about a lot, the eminent teacher Joseph Goldstein talks he 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 talks a, this is going to sound a little morbid but I it's not. Um, 
or maybe it is, but it, not in a, not in the pejorative, that we're all gonna die. And in, 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 in that process, it's possible you will experience some physical discomfort. And how do you want to be in that time? And, and I think, you know, as, and I agree with Joseph's argument that you can look at this pain and discomfort on the cushion as in some way practice for those moments. And yeah, I find that a really compelling thing. But, but definitely, if you think that you're going to hurt yourself, shift. Why not? Also, there are times, and I think I talked about this in a recent podcast, there there are times when the discomfort or restlessness or pain just gets to a point where you feel like you've explored it long enough and, and you just, you've reached your edge. Also, in those cases, fine, get up, shift. I do that. But I do, you do want to, you really do want to push your edge and explore it and then continue pushing and exploring it uh, the way we would in, in working out, for example. You don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to drive yourself crazy. But this is an interesting area of exploration and really valuable for the practice. And again, I will acknowledge that it also sucks in some ways. All right. Let's get to uh, Paula Ferris. She is, as, as I said before, uh, a an ABC News colleague of mine and a friend of mine. She was until recently the co-anchor of uh, Good Morning America's Weekend Edition and also a co-host on The View, which is a show we do at ABC. She has got a new podcast called Journeys of Faith, which I highly recommend you listen to, in which she speaks to incredibly interesting people, many of them very well known, about the role that faith plays in their life. And, and Paula's insight here was that we at ABC News, we interview celebrities all the time, but it's usually they're promoting their most recent movie or asking about their whatever breakup they've gone through or you know, what was it like to work with so-and-so in this most recent movie? But but rarely do we get a chance to talk to them about the, the most fundamental issues in, in their lives. So Paula is talking to writers and actors and musicians about their faith and what role that plays in what they do. And she's doing a great job at this. She's a really probing and interesting interviewer. I will also say, as it pertains to uh, uh, what you'll hear, uh, what you're about to hear, that I, I think a part of... <laughs> Of my personality that I don't, I'm not sure I ever really expose on this podcast or in any of my books or anywhere really. Um, maybe I do, but anyway, a part of my personality that is you're going to hear in this interview is that if I like somebody, like my wife, my uh, my kid, by the people I work with, and that often results in verbal abuse. That's kind of my, uh, as you'll hear me say with Paula, lo- my love language. Um, when I'm really comfortable with somebody, I make fun of them. That's just the way it is. It was the way I was raised and the way I am in the world, for better sometimes and also for worse. Anyway, Paula and I are really close, and I really like her. And so you're going to hear me tease her a little bit, and uh, I hope that's okay. But uh, it's, a, it's uh, as we discuss, it's a, a real sign of, uh, of respect and affection uh, because that's just the mode I go into when I really like somebody. So here we go. Here's Paula Ferris. Hi, Paula Ferris. Hi, Dan Harris. Can we wear our headphones? No, I don't like wearing headphones. Excuse me. Headphones. I like to wear headphones. Well, you can wear them. Fine. Because you know what? I have to actually focus on you. If you wear the headphones? Yes, because I it, it helps me my, hone in on what's the conversation. Because I'm ADD and I have to read lips, it helps me to pay attention. But I can't read your lips because the microphone's the mic- covering it. I can it. move the microphone. Uh-huh. There you you can move the microphone. Do you, are you, were you diagnosed with ADD? I have like the most blatant case of undiagnosed ADHD ever. But you, my whole family has ADD. 
Bigly. (laughs) (laughs) What does that do to your meditation? Uh, It makes me feel like a chipmunk. Remember? Yeah, the chipmunk equanimity. It's are we rolling on this? Yeah, we're rolling. Are we actually using this? Yeah, we're gonna use it. Um, aren't you supposed to introduce me properly? That, I know you have, have copious notes. Where's my bio? I do that later. Um and um I, I never come into interviews with notes. I'm asking the questions here. Let me keep going. By the way, you made a reference <laughs> to chip chipmunk equanimity, which I just explained to people. Mm-hmm. You were a big part of the last book I wrote, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and you were complaining to the mm-hmm. meditation teacher with whom I wrote the book, Jeff Warren, about how your mind is like a chipmunk, and he wrote a meditation for you called he did. Chipmunk. I have a, person, a personal meditation. By the way, you didn't use my alternate title for the book, and I'm still upset about that. <laughs> I used it in the book. I know. I did say, do you want to tell people what it was? Yes, it was 10% happier, but still a d- <laughs> I love you. I do. And I, I, I feel like our relationship, when I say it all the time, I'm the sister you never had, nor wanted right? would you say big sister or little sister oh definitely little sister <laughs> hello i look so much younger than you right <laughs> you, do. you do you are actually quite, quite a bit younger than me. we have a very rare relationship in this I, you don't find relationships like ours in this in this business well, how, how do you figure <laughs> you're supposed to you're supposed to agree with me i'm curious is this, you... is this a, uh, just in my mind <laughs> No, we, I think. <laughs> no, we have a great relationship, but I want to know what you think of it rather than me talking. This is your time. Oh, um, I just think it's rare to find someone that will laugh with you, laugh at you, yet advocate and champion for you. And here's the thing, like, everyone has an individual agenda in this business. Our ego, it, this business is driven by our ego, um, our insecurities, it's rare to find a team player. I think you and I, we just hit it off, even though, as you write in your book, that we are diametrically opposed. Different backgrounds, different ideology. I look a lot younger than you. Um, <laughs> but we, for whatever reason, we just, I, I love you. I, I mean, I know that you've got my back. I know that you will advocate for me. I know that you will make fun of me, which I am, which I, if you're not mocking me, and disparaging me, and so with I can see it in your eyes, the glint in your eyes. And I'm worried that something is wrong. My but, wife says the same thing. She says if I'm not teasing her, then right. she thinks I'm in a bad mood. Exactly. Yeah. But see, that's part of your charm. But I just, I, I you know, I'm so. I don't great. think my I'm, podcast listeners know that about me. Really? No, I think they hear me as well, maybe they, I don't know what they. Know what do they think me. you are? Like, they probably think I'm spiritual more guru, earnest than I than than I actually. Oh, am. Dan definitely has a devious side. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Well, the trick on working with you was that, and this is true with Sarah Haynes, too, who was also on the anchor desk with us at Good Morning America before you both abandoned me, um, was that I would, off the air, tease both of you relentlessly. Oh, But on the air, I was always really sweet. And you guys would would be so riled up because we'd come out of a commercial break in which I had said a bunch of incendiary things and then we'd be on the air all of a sudden and you'd both start picking on me and then the audience would send you mean tweets we took the bait (laughs) we we have no timing when it comes to the retaliation (laughs) and so yeah sarah and i would get excoriated on twitter and social media why are you so mean to dan i'm like if you only knew half of the things he was just saying to us (laughs) do you know that he has his wife programmed as his helper in his phone (laughs) 
<laughs> um, no, but I, I love you. And you know what? Oh, well. Well, I love you right back, but I want to hear... That did not sound very... Can, can you give me a little more enthusiasm? <laughs> I love you right back. But Dan's <laughs> uncomfortable with emotion. When I give him a hug, uh, it's very... Un- you've never reciprocated. I you're, reciprocate. You're, I think once your arms, like, they, they, they reciprocated mildly and <laughs> they kind of patted me on the back, but you just kind of stand there. You're, you're uncomfortable with, with emotion. No, I have a different love language than you do. What's your love language? Uh, Can we abuse. say that? <laughs> verbal abuse. <laughs> I heard my wife saying to my son, <coughs> my wife was talking to our kid the other day, and she was. I heard her explain to him, you know, if daddy's uh, mm-hmm. being silly with you, that means he loves you the most. Oh, I love it. So, yes, that's just a different love language. See, I love that you've embraced the love languages yes, that we talked about. Yes, you were the first person to use that And I think that there's a great book out there besides 10% Happier and your sequel, um, <laughs> Ten, it's called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, and it just breaks it down that we each communicate love um, in our primary love language. Mine is uh, definitely physical touch. That's how John can love me, my husband, and that's how I give love to you, thus the uncomfortable, enduring hugs that I love to give you. And also uh, acts of service. I just like to do nice things for people. Mm-hmm. But if he's not communicating in my love languages – back to me i won't feel loved so your love language is words of affirmation i would imagine they're the words of affirmation you know what i want or what i service. do well what do you what what fills your tank okay words of affirmation yeah. acts of service gifts quality time did i say physical touch and physical touch those are the five love those languages. are the five love which languages. one fills my tank mm-hmm. um i think all of them oh my gosh seriously yeah, I like all those things. But which ones do I communicate in? Which ones – what makes you feel loved when your wife does X, Y, or Z? What makes you feel more loved than anything else? What would I say my love <laughs> language is with my wife? I think the most important thing that goes on between – from my end that goes on between the two of us is that I actually need her advice all the time on a million things. And I, nothing I do goes out into the world without being run through her. And so I want her, that, her time and attention to give me advice on the most important projects I've got going. Quality time? I guess it's quality time. Like, so she's not working right now. Mm-hmm. She's been taking a year off. She's working. She's taking care of your child. Right. Okay. So she's, she's not, not working, working outside, outside the, the home. home. Good point. And so sometimes I have her come to some key meetings with me or for outside projects, not ABC stuff, but book stuff or she'll travel with me if I'm going to give a speech. And that's really important to me. Mm -hmm. I like having all that time with her. I like to be able to run stuff by her because she's the most important advisor I have. So I guess that would be my answer. Quality time. Quality time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interesting. So anyway, I don't know how we just went down that rabbit hole. Let me know. But sorry, you I went down that rabbit hole because you said um, I was insincere when I when I said I love you right back. Mm-hmm. I was totally sincere. I guess it's not m- that's really... not how I interpreted it though. Yeah, See, no, it's, and it's, I... it's very much open to interpretation too. It is, but you're not alone in in diagnosing my lack of overt affection. Okay. My yes. It's uh, okay though. Anyway, this is about you. So let me. Do, what I was trying to do when I perfunctorily said, "Is that even a word?" I love you right back. I was trying mm-hmm. to re. Focus the conversation on you. That was really where I was going with it. Um, I, you said so many things at the beginning of this that I actually kind of want to unpack. 
But let me just go back all the way to the beginning of the conversation about you and meditation and chipmunk mind. <laughs> How did you start meditating? Why did you start meditating? When was that? Can you just tell me that story? Well, I feel like there were several occasions where meditation, where I attempted it, but you you were the impetus, okay? And I, But I feel like I had a hard time at the very beginning even attempting it because I didn't really understand it. And it wasn't until you gave me a great analogy, which it's not that you're trying to empty your mind. Because for me, it's very, when the moment I close my eyes, my eyes just dart back and forth. And I'm thinking about a million things. It's not so much emptying your mind or clearing your mind. It's just learning how to focus. And when you said it's a bicep for your brain, that was a great. Bicep curl, yeah. Yes, a bicep. You said it was a bicep curl for your brain. That was a great visual. But also, do you remember that um, analogy, the description that you gave me with the whack-a-mole? Yes. Okay, so for me, it's that's the benefit. That's when I had my aha moment with meditation about what it could do for me. Yes, I'm going to continue to have these distractions, but it's like the whack-a-mole. It's still going to pop up, but I can choose to respond to it in my time, right? So I don't have to be frantic in responding to the whack-a-mole. Those distractions are still going to be there, but it's how I choose to react to those distractions. Yeah. I I would say maybe – or so there's a difference between how meditation shows up in your mind, how the practice works in your mind when you're doing it, and how it impacts how you are Mm -hmm. off the cushion in the rest of your life. Totally. What I hear you saying there, if I'm hearing you correctly, is mm-hmm. it's so funny how ADD you are because you just picked up your phone. I wanted started. to pull some because I have something I wanted to read to you, actually. <laughs> okay. That was me picking on you inappropriately, mm-hmm. apparently. Um, <laughs> but I am. It, listen, it's it's rampant. It, it, it's not something you wouldn't do. Um, anyway, the, the whack-a-mole thing is like your life is constantly throwing crazy things at you. You have three kids and – a more than full-time job, and uh, lots of stuff going on. The fact of the matter is all things are going to be popping up at you all the time. What meditation, I find, helps you do is just kind of not react blindly to all the things that are coming at you. You're much more focused. Focused and And, and less emotionally reactive. Right, and I feel you're focused, but you're intentional, too, about what you react to. And how you let it affect you. We recently hired, at the 10% Happier Company, (laughs) we hired a firm of all millennial women to help us um, uh, come up with new advertising. And they came up with a slogan that I really like, which is life is a mess. You don't have to be. And that I think is a really good encapsulation of what the practice does for you. That's right. Although I still feel like I'm a bit of a hot mess. Yeah. I mean, but we're, that's part of the beauty yeah, of You life. don't always have to be a hot mess. Right. Exactly. Sometimes you won't be. I'll be honest. You and I have had so many discussions about our faith. Okay, what we believe. In my case, lack thereof. Well, it's still a faith system, and, and my the lack of faith is still you're believing in something, right? Well, no, well, I'll, 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 we'll debate that in a second. You don't have hot or cold water. You have hot, and the absence of heat is cold, right? You don't have light and dark. Do you believe in absolutes, dualism, or is there is dark just the absence of light? And so you just it just might be the abs. You still have faith in something. We can unpack that yeah, later. Well, okay. But I think that there's this myth. I um a born-again Christian, you know I love Jesus, right? And we talk about this all the time. And I think there's this, I wouldn't say myth, but maybe a misconception in the Christian community that if you start meditating, you're somehow going to be turned into a Buddhist, uh, that it's somehow part of this religion. So the Bible talks about praying and meditating. I mean, Jesus went into the wilderness to pray and meditate 
So I think for me, you know, when I first started hearing about meditation, though, it was in the Eastern religion sense, uh, instead of really looking at what the Bible says about it. And I think that there, as a Christian, I might meditate for different reasons, and I might meditate on different things. Like my mantra is be still, which is a verse from the Bible. Um, And I very much make the practice my own. Um, I wanted to read you this verse from Psalm, and it says, The heart of the righteous one meditates before answering. And also, I will meditate on all your activity and ponder over your dealings. So when the Bible references meditating, it's really like meditating on who God is and his creation. Hold on. Those just went went by fast. Can you just read the first one again? The first one is from the Old Testament, which is Proverbs 15, 28. It says, the heart of the righteous one meditates before answering. Can't that, isn't that another way of saying what I just said about whack-a-mole? Or yes, what we both just completely. said about whack-a-mole, which is that life is going to be throwing all these little weasels that are going to be popping out of holes at you, mm-hmm. and um, you can respond wisely to the little weasels. Exactly. The, the righteous heart meditates in those mm-hmm. cases, and I, I'm taking Before that as answering. Yes, yes. Right. And then, you know, there are a multitude of references in the Bible, and I just think Christians need can benefit so much from meditating. Yes, we're not going— I'm not going to go to a Buddhist retreat or that's not what I'm looking to get out of it. And when, I, um, when I'm when i practicing, uh, I am thinking about I'm trying to draw nearer to God. I'll do a three-minute meditation and that's kind of my go-to. And for one minute, I focus on my breath. For the next minute, I, I, I go to my happy place and that's usually Lake Michigan and I, I smell the where air. Where you're from. Where I'm from. I'm from, yes, I'm from Michigan. So I'll, I'll go to the beach and I can feel my hands in the sand and I can hear the seagulls and I can just, just I can smell, it's the smell of, of, of the lake. I can hear the waves. I can smell um, the, the suntan oil that I put on. And then the third minute is, um, it would just be some sort of affirmation. You can make that affirmation whatever you want. For me, I'll just say I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I was, you know, knit together in my mother's womb. You know, I can do all things through Christ. So I'll say affirmations from the Bible. So for me, I've kind of made it my own little Christian meditation practice. Cool. And it works for me. Great. Um, and you say in that first minute when you're on your breath, is that when you're using the mantra about be, be still? Yes. On the in-breath and the out-breath? Mm-hmm. And you, yeah. do, do you find that you're able to? I actually want to get a tattoo that says be still. That's cool. On my wrist. I like that. Yeah. You should I'm getting, do that. I'm getting all tatted up. You have no other tattoos? I don't. Okay. No. you uh, got to start somewhere. I think it's a good place to start. Do, do you do you uh, do this every day? I try to, I try to, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It. I don't sit down for twenty five minutes at a time, but you I said will, three minutes. Yeah, this That's is really a, this good. is this is called a three minute cure. I went. I did this experiment with Red Book, and I tried all kinds of crazy. Red like, Book magazine. Yeah, Red Book magazine, and I did. Uh, they, they had you do an art. This was for an article. This was for, for an article. I did an experiment. They wanted me to try all forms of different meditation. Including mantra, sound wave, smells. Um, I did the three minute cure. The um, but I of all of them, the three minute cure is one that. Like, how can you not make clear three minutes out of your day? One hundred and eighty seconds. You're impressed with my math, there, aren't you? <laughs> so I really like the three minute cure. I also will just if I if I just need some time to myself, I'll just close my eyes and I'll be still. 
be still, and that focuses me. I'll do that for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. I think it's great, and I also wouldn't beat up, beat yourself up over the fact that, you know, I said, do you do it every day? You said, I try to. One of the things I learned in writing the last book mm-hmm. is there's this concept that we use now at the company, at the 10% company, is daily-ish, which is like tell, we just tell people, try to do it most days. Well, I think that, that you just have to give yourself some grace. Yeah. And we're yeah. so hard on ourselves. Yes. And we talk ourselves out of it. We d- we're dissuaded because, oh, I can't do it perfectly. Well, you don't. Ha- it's not about perfection. It's just about trying. Give yourself the same amount of grace you give every other every other person on the planet. You know, start over. If you didn't do it for two days straight, three days a week, whatever, just get back to it. It's okay. Be kind to yourself. I love that. Uh, but I just, just going back to what you said about being a Christian who meditates and some of those cultural caution that mm-hmm. people have in, in the in the evangelical community. I know there have been prominent evangelicals who've gotten yeah. up. Reverend Al Mohler got up and said, uh, you know, don't, you know, the, if you're going to let the devil in if you do this. The Pope, the former Pope Benedict called it meditation, auto-erotic spirituality. So what do you say to, to your fellow, your co-religionists about this practice? Well, I say the Bible says pray and meditate. So were we not supposed to obey the Bible? And I think, you you know, it's like Halloween. Halloween was a, a pagan holiday, right? Are we celebrating like the pagans did when we go trick-or-treating? No, you make it your own. And the the Jesus, again, went into the wilderness to pray and meditate. And I think if it's in the Bible, um, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. Yes, it could be rooted. There can be some roots in Buddhism. But for me, meditation's rooted in the Bible. How can I argue that? And yes, people are going to turn it into what they want it to be but you make it your own and that's what i'm going to go with i'm going to go with my gut i'm not you know praying to to buddha um i'm not facing east i'm not trying to i'm not doing this for religious buddhist reasons or or any of that or any ideology i know what what i want from it and that is you know to to draw closer to god and I feel like I really can through meditation. Um, but I also want it just for focus and equanimity and, you know, the ability to be intentional and not so scattered with my thoughts. You so. you have such a – you really do have very – you have a lot going on. You got Three kids. I mean, you were running slightly late coming to this interview because late. your son, your middle child – as pneumonia, right? Um, so you got a lot going on, and plus, you you work here at ABC. Uh, you're traveling all over the place, and this is a pretty. This can be a competitive, tough environment. So I'm just wondering, how has this changed you or your the way you relate to all this as a consequence of having this practice? I just, I think I I realized how much I needed. And once I started, I realized how much I needed to do this, um, and I realized that something was really missing. You know, I don't, I, I, like I said, I have a very, uh, I have an undiagnosed case of ADD, but if you talk to anybody, they know I have ADD. Um, but this for me, I don't want to take medicine. Uh, I don't, then people that do my, my, my family does whatever. I just don't want to pull myself full of ADD drugs. This, this really helps me to focus. And it's one of the few things. And so once I started meditating i realized how much better i felt um it was a spiritual connection to god um physically mentally i really noticed a 
a mental difference. There are so many benefits, and I didn't realize I didn't realize how many benefits there were until I started, and then I stopped for a while. That's a great way to notice the benefits. Oh I yeah, think. for sure, for sure. So I'm I'm hooked. But I've again I've made it my own. Yeah. And as much as you are my spiritual guru, <laughs> right, and my and my leader, mm-hmm. what do you say you are to to Bianca? I, uh, I always ask Bianca, how does it feel to be married to your spiritual leader? I love it. I yeah. love the. Eye rolls I get mm-hmm. in response. I admire you too. I've seen such a difference in you. Honest to God, I mean, you've endured a lot too. We all. Um, this is a this can be a really tough business, um, just from the physical aspects, the physical grind, the emotional grind, the ego checks, um, and I've noticed a huge difference in you. Not just ten percent. I would venture to say fourteen <laughs> percent. I'm going to go out on a ledge. But you're you're much more zen. You're happier. The way that you respond, and I don't know for sure if that's because of your meditation practice, but I've seen a huge change in you. I appreciate that. I think I have a lot of work left to do. Well, we all do. Yeah. But the goal is not perfection, right? No, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. To the extent that – I mean, to the extent that you're comfortable – can you talk about the unique stresses of being in the job that we have? Uh, uh, yeah. You can. Okay. Because I don't want to put you on the spot to say things you don't want to say or whatever. But No. Okay. No, I mean, what do you want to know about the stresses? <clears throat> I want to know about the stresses from your perspective because I know them from mine. Um, it's very much a job where there's a huge double standard. I'll just go out and say that. Between, Men and women. Oh, yes. I completely agree. I, I don't mean, even you, know what you're going to say, but no, I, no, think, I think you're right. Um, aesthetically, um, you and I could – you could wear the same suit for 365 days straight. Nobody would Nobody's going to notice. You and I have talked on the set before about if we were to look at each other's replies on Twitter, right? some high percentage of yours would either be – Completely sexually inappropriate or just mean about whatever you're wearing or your hair or makeup. Sure. Zero percent of mine would be about how I look. No. You're the newsman. You're the serious newsman. And I think we're held in many ways. And it's the nature of the business. It's the nature of the culture, unfortunately. Um, but we're held to a different standard. I can say the most profound thing and people will respond, uh, your necklace was crooked. Did you know that? Or what's what's up with your hair? You know, Why does your makeup look funny today? And it's those things that and I understand that, but that's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. It's a high stress job and and I say this, everyone that works in the TV business, the news business, we've got a little bit of crazy going on because we thrive off of pressure. And these are high pressure, high stake situations. You can say one wrong thing and ruin your career. What about the crazy that makes you want to be in front of millions of people? Yeah, well, we all have it. Yes. Right? I don't know what that crazy is. We thrive. I think for me, it's I'm. I don't work well until the final moment. If you give me three months for a project, I'm going to cram it right at the end. That's just when I my my blood gets boiling, my thoughts start working. I I'm a bit of a procrastinator in that sense because I know that's when I produce my best work is when I'm stressed like a grape like a. Uh, a wine grape. They have you ever been to a vineyard? I, I have. Okay, the grapes are so they look like raisins, right? They're distressed, they're withered, but yet the more distressed, the better the concentrate. I kind of feel like a wine grape. I have to be distressed 
stressed in, in order to produce my best fruit. I see. In some sense, I wasn't following that analogy till the end. Um, Did you follow it? Now I got it. Yeah. Now I, I got you. Um, I know you. I know you. You abstain from alcohol, so you don't even want that to taint. Not for religious. <laughs> I know. Uh, That's another podcast in and of itself. What Dan is not eating these days, but we're not going to go down that road. So boring. Uh, so boring. It's like ninety percent more boring. That's the next book, right? <laughs> I don't know how I could get more boring. Um, Good thing you have a really great personality, <laughs> and you're very magnetic. I uh, sometimes I'm not so sure about that. Um, anyway, I keep trying to get it back to you. Oh, sorry, I'm good at deflecting. The stress of the business isn't just the deadlines and the high wire act of being in public, or the criticism that I think is disproportionately directed at females. Um, especially on an aesthetic level, it's also we're competing with one another. We're competitors. You talked about this earlier when you said everybody has an agenda, and you're using that to talk about the sort of unusual re- nature of our relationship as co-anchors who really had each other's back. Can you? What's your view on the sort of competitive nature of the business? Well, they throw everyone into one ring, and it's different when you're. I, I worked in three local markets. So I work for the local affiliate. So if you live in Dayton, Ohio, you work in Cincinnati, or you live in Cincinnati, Ohio, you turn on your local news, or I worked in Chicago, your local news, I worked there, you'll see your local anchors and reporters. So I did local. It's a totally different beast when you come to the network because everybody gets thrown into this pit and the cream will rise to the top. But sometimes to rise to the top, you got to stab one another in the back. It is so competitive. Everyone's going for the same assignments. And that's what makes it difficult. And, you know, at, the, at this level, there's so, there's so little real estate. There's so, um, in terms of anchoring, reporting, and everybody's fighting for the same fish. And so it's rare when you can hug somebody and know with confidence that they're not going to be stabbing you. <laughs> Even if they don't the hug back. you back. Even if I don't hug, hug you back, back, but you know that I'm not stabbing. Maybe you're not hugging me because you have a knife and you just would feel so awful about stabbing your little sister in the back. No, but it is it is such and – I, and I say when you get to the network level, it's only 40% talent and it's 60% politics. And it's mm. figuring out how to navigate it. And sometimes the most talented people don't get the best assignments. Sometimes you're excluded because – you know, I can't drop everything. I have three little kids. I remember I was asked to go to the London Olympics whenever the London Olympics were, I think the 2012. They asked me to go three days beforehand and to be gone for three weeks. You know, the, the Olympics, they're like a very last second assignment, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not on the calendar for 10 years <laughs> prior to. And I, But I couldn't drop everything. I have two little kids. I, um, you know, I had to bring family in from, would have had to bring family in for out. I'm like, I would have loved to do it. I went to Brazil for a month to cover the World Cup. But, you know, opportunities like that. And then they look, oh, she's not willing. She can't go. She can't make it happen. So you're almost punished for those situations. And that's that can be difficult to try to navigate that. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection 
over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. One of the things that I find most interesting about you and I think has been a source of what could have been what kept us apart, but I think it's actually been a big contributor to our friendship is like you are not the normal – you don't bring into this building the normal biography. I was born in the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Both of my parents are scientists. I was kind of raised to be in the mainstream media, right? Right. You are from Michigan. You were raised by evangelical Christians. You went to a college that was – you know, really geared toward Christianity. It's the Christian Liberal Arts School. Christian Liberal Arts School. Mm-hmm. Which, what's it called? Cedarville University. Cedarville about University. About 3,500 students. I met John there, by the way. Met your college, husband there. College sweethearts. We got married at 24. Something you don't see here on the East no. Coast. Right, right. So w- what's it like walking into this building every day given that um, uh, biography as opposed to mine? You sometimes feel like you're a fish out of the water, but I like – I – I've always been, I wouldn't say always, but I like being the devil's advocate. I like bringing a different side to the table. I think that's part of my 
journalistic instinct. I want to bring, whether that's in a story or just my own personal background, my resume, I don't, you know, I have bring a geographical diversity to the table, ideological diversity to the table. In some senses, I feel a great responsibility to represent marginalized voices that aren't represented. I know what it's like to live in Chicago and to be referenced as a flyover state. I know how hurtful that can be. I I can feel the elitism of the East Coast and the West Coast and nothing else in the middle matters. So I take a personal responsibility to make sure that those views and those voices and opinions are presented and are at the table. So I consider it a great honor. I love it. I feel like I'm thriving. I don't want to be in a room of with a room of like-minded people. I like to be the instigator in some senses. I like to be the odd man out. <clears throat> well, I will say you 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 said before that I'm not super effusive. I will say that your ideological lens, and I don't think that's probably the wrong way to because I don't actually think you bring ideology to the office. It's more that you have your own cultural history mm-hmm. that you bring and you bring a sort of contrarian <laughs> point of view into the office has had a profound impact on me. So one of the things that we did for the many years when we were co-anchors on Weekend GMA was every Saturday and Sunday morning, we have a political analyst on to talk about the big news. And in the era of Trump, it's almost always big news. And we would craft those questions together often in the makeup room, just sort of arguing about what's the most important thing. And you always forced me to think outside of the normal, outside of the box. And then you were, you know, you've turned me on to, well, Ben Shapiro, for example, the conservative podcaster, who I now listen to all the time. Um, you know, I have my problems with Ben. I've interviewed him. And, he's got some blind spots. And he's a recent guest on your on your podcast, which mm-hmm. we will get to eventually. Um but but you really, really forced me to see my blind spots and my biases. Um, this isn't a question. It's just a long um, – a long, a long salute to you oh, and what you. you've brought into this office, which I think has been very, very constructive, at least speaking from my narrow – But don't you think we're better I, – I, I think we have an obligation yes. to, to think outside of ourselves. Yes. That's why I was you – know, I've learned so much being on the East Coast as well, you know, having lived in the Midwest for 35, 36 years before I moved here. And so it's opened my eyes to um, different backgrounds, um, to different ideology. You say ideology. I say ideology. Can you say it either way? No, I think you're saying it correctly. Correctly or incorrectly? Correctly. Really? I think so. For once? <laughs> Oh, gosh, I'll take is, that. is that the I'll opposite of mansplaining? Than mansplaining, I, I normally know, do. With you. <laughs> no, oh, gosh, this I never win this war. I mean, you are. I think it's ideology. I think you said it. If that's what you, yeah. you are, the king of etymology. And uh, I don't know about no, that. You really are. Dan's really smart, by the way. Ish. You weren't allowed to watch shows growing. Like you could only watch, watch educational shows on TV. I, I was allowed very limited TV. Now, of course, I work in the box, which is the yeah. ultimate uh, irony. And my mom used to, you know, like read it to us out of the dictionary and give us the Latin derivations of words. Yeah, it was super nerdy, pretty That's nerdy. So great, though. My brother's way worse than me. I have to admit, when I read your books, I have to have a dictionary nearby. But I love that. And but you're you have this way. You have such a keen sense of writing and conversational way of writing that 
the words can be lofty, but I kind of still understand what they mean in the context. And I can hear, I can see that twinkle in your eye and I can, I can tell that some of it's tongue. I, I know what you're talking about, but I feel like I'm learning so much, not just about the practice of meditation, but I mean, you're dropping some knowledge. I've got my dictionary. What does that word mean? Um, Everything you just said was super kind, but you are deflecting. Oh, what are we talking about? We're talking about you. So I have another oh. question about you, uh, which is that you did a really, I think, brave thing recently in a professional context. I killed my career. <laughs> didn't kill your career. <laughs> but you took – well, I want you to tell the story. But I want to ask before you tell the story mm-hmm. one question that hopefully will just get knit, knitted, knit, woven into the answer, woven. which is did your meditation practice – the calm equanimity, any of that little dose of calm and equanimity that was injected into your life through meditation in any way contribute to this big decision that you're going to talk about? I think it did because it it made me realize how out of balance my life was. And I may not have felt that otherwise. But I remember you and I, so this summer I decided to walk away from Weekend GMA, walk away from The View into this ambiguous base of my career. I was I'd been working weekends for the better part of 17 years, virtually my entire marriage, three little kids, my health started to suffer. But when I broached it initially the summer of 2017, so a year prior, I remember I had talked to you about it and you literally I remember you came back and you said I thought you were crazy. And I think that's what most people thought. Why would you walk away from two dream jobs into this space of the unknown, you understood why I was doing it for I needed some work-life balance, right? But still, we get so sucked into our own ego and we inflate who we are in our own minds and 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 the impact that we're having on other people. And we don't realize that like I was more focused on the spotlight instead of my own sanity. Everybody was getting my leftovers, my husband, my kids and i realized that my job had become a bit of a addiction it was had become my narcotic of choice honestly i was addicted to the thrill of uh, the thrill of you know being on tv addicted to um my ego i guess you could say and i knew that if i had if I walked away, people would think I'm crazy. Oh, she was forced out. And I was worried what people were thinking would think about me if I stepped down. And then, so this the summer of 2017, I had spoken with you. I had spoken with another executive and, and who had told me, flat out, you're crazy if you walk away. And it would be hard for you to climb up the ladder here, you know, to, to be promoted if you walked away. We'd, we're not going to promote somebody that's not an anchor. So I let that fear really paralyze me. And I dug deeper. I'm like, okay, I'll just prove to them how important I am here. I'm going to stay stay put. And then I went through a really tough season. And it started with a miscarriage. The day before I interviewed Sean Spicer, I had this big interview with Sean Spicer. I was getting an exclusive with him. First time he had spoken since his controversial Emmy appearance. Day before I found out, I went to the doctor. John and I went to go see the baby. No heartbeat. So I'm conducting the interview thinking may the child inside of me is probably dead, which is a tough feeling, you Ugh. know, when you're conducting talk about triumph and tragedy in one moment. Well, mm-hmm. I just going to stop you for a second. Uh, I, I, we've been through miscarriage, too, but m- my family. But 
obviously I'm not the one carrying it, so I can't pretend to understand the half of how horrible that must feel. But for those of those in the audience who haven't seen the Sean Spicer interview, you were incredibly good in that interview. And so it's amazing to me because I didn't know the timing I, or I'd forgotten the timing. Mm-hmm. But I do remember the interview and you were really spot on in that interview. It's so incredible to me that you were carrying a lot of emotional distress into it. Right. Because it didn't show. I kind of – the thing is I, I run to work. I've noticed and that's when I – that was one of my coping mechanisms when I had to go back to the doctor the following week to confirm that the baby wasn't viable. I had to um, take a pill. Um, a couple of days later, I developed an infection, had to have an emergency procedure on a Friday, got home at 1130 that night. And the next day, you were gone that weekend. I went right back to work. I just dug deeper. That's how I cope. I go back to work. I don't want to think about it. So and I, so I get up four hours later after I've had an D, emergency DNC. Mm. So that was part one. A month later, I'm doing a live shot in front in in Wall Street, and some. Can I say that? Uh, Ryan okay. is saying no, but right. they'll, they'll believe it. So a month later, I'm on Wall Street doing a live shot for Good Morning America about the bull run. Which the irony of me doing a story on the stock market? Okay. Anyway, I was roughly 10 to 20 seconds from going live, and these two hoodlums threw something at my head. I didn't know what it was right away. They threw an apple at my head, but they threw it so hard that the apple exploded on my head. And luckily, it wasn't on camera. I know it'd be dubbed Apple Girl forever, but um, I got a concussion from it. The police found surveillance video. They said it was two kids. They never found them, by the way. They were probably on their way to school. They said that... They threw it 60 miles an hour. So it hit the side of like right behind my ear bone. If my face had been turned just a couple of like centimeters to the right, it would have shattered the right side of my face. So I had a concussion. I was forced to sit out for three weeks. The day, and I'm talking five minutes after I get an email from work clearing me to go back to work, I get into a car crash. Not my fault. Head-on collision. I've just dropped John off at the off or at the train station where we live, driving my minivan, minivans totaled. I can't go back to work right away. Then a couple of months later, I get influenza, which subsequently turns into pneumonia. That's seven months of my life, okay? I don't know if God could have like screamed any louder that I needed to slow down and I needed, I needed to take this step of faith and walk into the unknown and take care of myself. And so it was in that moment, I need like literally I felt like God had to hit me over the head with that apple, but I he needed to get my attention. I was so addicted to work and I was so addicted to the high of of my job. And, you know, when I first broke the news to the bosses, you know, they were supportive. They didn't want me to step away. I mean, there's no one that can deny that we had great chemistry, the whole team. It's hard to find rapport like that. Um but they honored my decision. It was t- and it was really tough, but I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. I think it was incredibly brave. I think it was I mean, I was selfishly not happy about it because I didn't want you to go. You but initially you thought I was a little cuckoo to you're like why would you walk away from this? And that's what most people thought. And that's what I bought into. I bought into that fear and I thought everybody's right. 
I'm totally crazy to walk. Yeah, away but from a big this. part of my resistance was just selfishness because I knew it was going to be bad for. Me. I thought isn't, it was going to be bad for me. Isn't meditation supposed to help you with your selfishness? Oh, you know, ten percent buys me a lot of room. To <laughs> to be an idiot. Uh, so I, that was my problem with it, but. Once you explained, hey, look, I got to work on my marriage, uh, you know, not that you guys were having problems, but just that. No, I needed to invest in my marriage. <clears throat> and your kids. Yeah, I did. And so once you said it that way, it made a lot of sense. And actually, it's provoked a lot of really healthy thinking for me and dialogue with my wife about work-life balance. And so it's been, a, you know, I talked about how you had a, an ongoing impact on my thinking about tribalism, for example, and bias and the media, big impact. And. But that, that, this was another decision you made that really helped me mm-hmm. think about my own life. Yeah. So I think it was a really brave move. How are things going? It, they're they're going great, but it's you know, the, the the tough one of the toughest parts about it. It's not like I was leaving one like two dream jobs for this other cushy gig. I literally it's that quote from Martin Luther King: "Faith is taking that step when you can't." See the rest of the staircase. I literally felt like I couldn't even see the step I was on. So you basically just to fill people in, you decided to become a correspondent yeah. here instead of you had you had you were a co-host of the View. You were uh, the co-host of Weekend Good Morning America, and now you have neither of those I had anchor titles. titles. Yeah, I had, anchor I had titles, big titles, which is a big deal in our industry. And now you are a correspondent for ABC News, and you travel and do all yeah. sorts of stories. But it's a much less well defined role oh completely it's not defined and you know i i think i was a little too prideful in the sense that in haughty i thought that oh i'm not defined by what i do i'm defined by who i am i'm a wife i'm a mom i'm a child of god you know and and so but the moment i walked away from what i did i didn't know who i was anymore and there was a lot of guilt involved in that why isn't being a mom enough why Mm. isn't being a wife enough why isn't you know being a child of god enough and there was a tremendous amount of guilt not just that those weren't enough but the fact that i totally lost my identity in what i did it's not that that, long ago so you no, i'm still i'm still working through all of this but i'm i'm better every day but that was a a huge wake-up call i mean if you ask yourself if i walked away from what i do would i still know who i am i thought i would always know the answer. I didn't realize that this quote-unquote vocational calling that I had had completely consumed me to the point that I didn't know who I was outside of it anymore. And I think that's part of why you get that response from the bosses and from me, your friend, when you propose this idea mm-hmm. is because you're triggering, I can only speak for myself, fear in me. You know, could I do what she's doing? You know, could I? If I, even after all this meditation, could mm-hmm. I walk away? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it really forced me to think about it yeah. in ways that I'm still wrestling with today. Yeah, I'm, and thank you for that. Um, it's been tough though because it's I've been very introspective, and just realizing that again, I had become addicted to my job, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize it. But one of the things you've done, and this is, gets us to ostensibly why you're here, which of, of course I'm going to be bringing up at the last minute here, but. Um, which is your fault because you're too interesting on all these other subjects, um, <laughs> is one of the things you did that I think I have a lot of respect for and, and I think I think is going to be uh, incredibly successful is you thought really long and hard and strategically about, you know, how can I mold this job into – how can I channel my profound interests into this new sort of undefined role? Sure. So you started a podcast where you talk to people about – 
faith. Right. So can you just talk about that for a second rather than having me talk about it? When I when I broached this subject of stepping away with the bosses, they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to work on big stories, the people that are the center of them. So, you know, substantial stories, consequential interviews. And I said, and I want to launch a faith podcast. And I actually have you to thank of all people, my whatever you are, atheist, agnostic friend. You and I were talking months ago and I was like, I just don't know what my lane is. Is it parenthood? And you're like, it's faith, you dummy. You didn't probably say dummy, but for me, I just, I don't see myself. It's not a hobby. It's not a habit. It's who I am. And it's, I can't see myself without it. I don't see it myself separate from faith. So I didn't, I didn't even think about it. But for you, you were able to identify, this is your lane. This is who you are. And so you're the one that encouraged me to do the faith podcast. I did. Oh, I don't you even did. remember that. Take some credit. Yes. Okay. Well, you helped me. A good I, well, idea. you. We talked about what my lane could be, and I still remember. You're like, it's faith. You should do a podcast on faith. Well, I mean, and I also think you so come you, at it from such a unique perspective because you you have a foot in both worlds. You right. have a foot in the secular Upper West Side mainstream <laughs> media world. And you uh, have a foot in mission. I'm good at straddling, is what yes, you're saying. Yes. Two separate worlds. You're a gymnast. <laughs> gymnast. No, I, I, I feel like there's such a hole in the market because we want to talk to newsmakers and influencers about their latest project, about you know that game-winning touchdown, about something salacious they said in the news. But we don't talk to them about their faith. If they mention... You know, you know Jesus or Allah or Buddha, what have you? We're gonna believe. We don't. We don't. We don't want that. You know, that's not what this interview is about. And so I just sense the fact that yes, I am. I am a Jesus follower. I can't imagine my life without my faith. It has been so important to me, and and guided me and carried me when I my marriage was on the rocks. When I've had multiple miscarriages, didn't think we could even have babies through moves cross country, several, it has sustained me so much. And I can't imagine my life without it. It is my glue and my foundation and my rock. And I know there's other people that feel the exact same way, regardless of whether they're Christian, they're Jewish, they're Muslim, they're atheist. And I wanted to give people an opportunity to talk about what they believe, why they believe it, and how it's navigated their life through triumph and tragedy. I just think there's a hole for it. You can go to the 700 Club, you can go to Rabbi Shmuley, you know, which Roseanne Barr did, but you can't, there's no mainstream outlet that's giving people that platform to talk about it. And so that's what I want to do. And I just sat down with uh, Sam Harris, who is totally out of my league, by the way. This guy's a philosopher and you're good friends with him. He's been on your podcast, right? He has. And I've been on his. Yeah. I think I've been on his. Maybe I have. I don't know. Anyway, Sam is a good friend of mine. So he was. But but let's say you've had many guests, some of them super famous, like country music stars. Luke who, Bryan, uh-huh. Hillary Scott, Kellyanne Conway, Tim Tebow. Um, I'm having uh, Reza Aslan, who's who grew up Shia, converted to Christianity, then converted back to Islam. So I want to. I also want to encourage dialogue with people that we disagree with. I don't have anything in common with Sam, but I want to. I want to hear where he's coming from. I don't want to debate. Listen, that's not a debate. Anybody wants to see me and Sam Harris, I would give him my butt kicked. Okay, but I want to establish that we can have respectful conversation. I mean, if you think about some of the more profound conversations you've had, it's with people you and I, people yeah. that you don't see eye to eye with. Yes. So let's just learn to 
just pull up a chair, find some common ground. Let's listen. Let's respect one another. I want to know more about other religions. That doesn't mean that I'm questioning what questioning my faith, but I do think you need you need to question your faith. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. You need to, you know, the Bible says, be able to explain the hope that is within you. And this is challenging me. Um, it's. I hope it challenges other people. I don't want to just sit down. You know, Jesus sat next to sinners and, and people that he didn't see eye to eye with. I want to be able to do that. I want to sit down with people from all different walks and ask them what they believe and why they believe and inspire people. And I think that impulse is incredibly important right now in this country where – um, you know, one of the big benefits of, of my friendship with you is that I feel like we're doing something that the rest of the country really needs to do, which is we're having respectful. I mean, sometimes it's more locker room, well, not so <laughs> respectful, but not in the access Hollywood <laughs> locker room right. sense. <laughs> right. That's right. But we, you know, we, we have respectful conversations, even though we probably use a lot of profanity um, about profound disagreements. And mm-hmm. that is what America is missing right now. Oh. You can't, Dan, you can't, people won't even listen to you. No, well, we're they not talking have, to each other I know. because we have our own silo. If you're a Fox News viewer, you're not listening to MSNBC. If you're an MSNBC viewer, you're not listening. I'm not trying to pick on those two outlets, but we are we have our own tailored social media feeds. We can't even agree on basic facts. And so I give the credit to you in terms of teaching me how to do this because you're the one who's had to walk into an environment where most people probably don't share your cultural. Am I your life guru now? A little bit. I would say you've been very useful in my life. <laughs> useful. Can you just say I've been inspirational and that you aspire to be like me? Put it in the teleprompter. Maybe I'll read it <laughs> off. The- <laughs> I love it. I've missed you. No, but I encourage people to to tune in and to support it and to subscribe. Journeys of Faith. We have Marla Maples, and coming up, we have Reza Aslan, who's Muslim. We did Ben Shapiro, Robin Roberts. We have Sherry Shepard, Melissa Joan Hart, and then season two. You know, I. I just I'm I'm open to your suggestions. So before we go, let's 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 have the debate you started at the beginning oh, that gosh. I said table, and you said something about atheism is a faith system or something like that. Can you oh, just go, go back? Ba- and, are we really going to end? On I don't this note? I don't like um, bringing something up and then telling people we're going to table it and then not bringing it back. Okay, so well, that's my I job. talked to Sam Harris, who from his vantage point, he does not believe that it is a faith system. I don't either, but I don't. I wouldn't call myself an atheist, and I think he has some problems with that word too. Right, and we tried to differentiate between atheism and agnosticism, and I think he. Makes... There's a, I think there's a key difference there. Yes, I mean even in the roots of the word, right? You know the, the roots of the word. Atheism is without God. A mm-hmm. agnostic is without knowledge. So I don't know if there's a God. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do I know? But so I can't tell. I wouldn't sit here and say everything you believe is patently untrue. I just don't know. Right. Um, and what that you, I so seems to be. So what do you classify yourself to be? I would say I'm a respectful agnostic as it pertains to organized religion. I would also call myself a Buddhist, but not in the religious sense, in that mm-hmm. I think of Buddhism as something you do, not as something you believe in. So I, I meditate. I, I, I find the sort of philosophical and ethical explorations, uh, philosophical stuff in, mm-hmm. in Buddhism to be really interesting and actionable. Sure. But I, I don't, you know, I can't tell you that it, karma is real. Or that reincarnation, I've seen no evidence for that. But the, what I like about the Buddha was he was like, take it or leave it. Do the meditation, take it or leave it. Sure. And by the way, he had no creation myth around about the universe. He had no um, – he was just a dude who died. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't cl- claim to be a god or a prophet or anything like that. 
But the, to the extent that he made metaphysical claims, I maintain an agnosticism. Right. I, I just enjoyed sitting down with Sam. I don't agree with him. You know, I, I, I understand where he's coming from, though. I understand the problems that he has. So I just think there, you can't prove everything in a scientific lab. And I think that so many philosophers, scientists, neuroscientists, they want to prove everything in a lab. If I asked you to prove your love for Bianca, you could scientifically prove it, but you'd also have to factor in circumstantial evidence, direct evidence, just like you do in a courtroom. And so I think that's where I have a problem with people saying science can't prove. Science can prove. I mean, anthropologists, uh theologians, scholars, psychologists, psychiatrists can prove that Jesus existed. It's just you have a problem with whether or not he rose from the dead. Right? Or was the son of God. I think or both the ends son of, of, God. The, of the, the divinity as yes. well. Um, but I think, you know, there's there's an aspect also of faith. But I think, again, you got to dig into it. You can't just say I was raised this way. You need to know why you believe it. It can't just be the faith of your parents. Here's a suggestion for season two, perhaps. I issue this gingerly, but somebody Donald who, Trump, if you can get him, definitely, <laughs> definitely Francis Collins, um, okay. who uh, what what is he? he's the head of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, I think. Okay, hopefully I'm not wrong about that. Anyway, he's a, but he's a he's a devout Christian, nice. and um, I sat and interviewed him once, and and I pressed him a lot of the kind of things you're talking about here, and and his answer was ultimately just you know it, I think he's saying what I what I think you're saying, which is ultimately it just does come down to a leap. Mm-hmm. At the end of it. At the end of it, there is a bit of a leap of faith. And I come back to my brother was an or my brother in law was an atheist for thirty plus years. He's a physician. And he just talks about his moment where he realized, you know, this we are such intricate beings, we couldn't have just been random. That was an aha moment for him. And I say, Well, you know, I have all these questions and you know, there's so, certain things you can't answer. And he's like, I just realized if I could explain every single thing about God, he would be too small. And I think at some point, the Bible even says that now we see through a glass dimly, then we're going to see face to face. You know, to God, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. We're trying to, as as mere mortals, figure out an infinite, immortal being. And if I could do that, God would be way too small. So there is Definitely a sense of faith. I do think you have to have the knowledge. You need to dig in. You need to be able to answer profoundly, what do you believe and why do you believe it? It cannot be the faith because it's the faith of your fathers. You need to have, it needs to be real and personal for you. And that's what, that's one thing I hope to encourage people with the podcast. It has totally challenged me. So that's what I want to do. Did you subscribe yet? Give me your – if you have not subscribed to my podcast – I don't know. I am going to walk out of this studio right now. Where's your phone? It's in my pocket. Let me I'll see. You, let me just say No, something. no, no. Let me see your phone. Hand it over, Dan Harris. You're not going to be able to unlock it. Unlock it right now. By the way, look how broken it is. Okay. Just subscribe. Look. If you're not subscribed, I'm going to be so mad at you. I'm I, so I hurt. Think I subscribed. No, you didn't. Somehow I overlooked it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, you did. You have to just listen and give me a little feedback. All right. Just subscribed. I can't, I'm embarrassed that I haven't subscribed. Actually. It's okay. Because some that's the, that's a key that people need to know. It is important to subscribe because you have a lot of listeners that might download, but they have not subscribed. Subscribing is so important, right? Yes, it is. 
That's how we. That's that's how they know. That's what they. That is their metric of success. That's, it is subscriptions. It's well, not, it's also list, listens per episode. It's a big deal. LPs. Is that what they're called? I don't, I don't know. know. I just made that up. I, I, sounded, I said that with confidence. Downloads. Though, didn't I? I don't LPs. Know. Um, can I say something in closing? Am I allowed to do that? Are we going to say the Lord's Prayer? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The, the, the Lord lift you up with, look upon you with favor and give you his peace. I pray that over my kids every night. That's the first time that's been done on this podcast, but really? respect. There you go. Um, I was just joking, by the way, when I would. said that, but you let me go with it, of so course. why not? Uh, what I was going to say is I do love you, and I really hope Aww. that this podcast is a massive success. If I could have 10% of the success of mm. your podcast, <laughs> I would be happier. How about... How about I? Did you see what I just did? That was so clever. It was it was awesome. <laughs> uh, how I about how about you? How about my podcast ultimately is ten percent as successful as yours? That would be the right order in the universe, I think. Okay. Let's let's go for let's, that. Let's push for that. Um, thank you for coming on. Anytime. This has been pleasure of the day. Goodbye. Goodbye. So long. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. 
the problem. This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.